right, all right, all right. We are back. Thank you for tuning in with us for another week. Last week, we got to hear senior financial analyst Martel McDuffie speak about several topics in finances, including the differences between a Roth IRA and a traditional IRA. He even dropped a few wise words from Papa Valentine in there. And next, he's going to talk about the importance of discipline in your money and in your finances. We're going to jump right into it. So since you said that word discipline, mm-hmm. how, how what is behavioral finance and, and how how does it affect my financial decisions? Sure. Yeah. So that, that rolls right into the next topic. Uh, behavioral finance is something that has, um, it was first taught to me back in college around, I would say, 2008, 2007, where people were taking finance and actually applying a psychology to it, saying, why do people make positive or negative decisions based on financial questions or financial outcomes? And really, behavioral finance, what it was taught to me, and I kind of put it in my own words, was really a science or a new field of study that uh, uh, tries to put um, parameters or, or explanation around why people act irrationally or rationally around financial decisions and monetary processes. When I'm talking about behavioral finance, it's really the study of oneself and their views on finances themselves. There are certain things that kind of roll into behavior finance. You can see, you'll hear certain things, and one of them, excuse me, kind of got confused by, uh, you know, uh, our past president here saying herd immunity. Well, there's a term in behavioral finance called herd mentality, or you'll hear certain things people are saying as anchoring or overconfidence or even confirmation bias. Those are some of the key things that spewed out of the, the study of behavioral finance. And her mentality is really just, okay, if Bobby did it and succeeded, then I'm going to do it. And I want to succeed the same way Bobby did it. You know, damn all the things that he actually did, right or wrong. But since Bobby did it and made $2,000, I want to do it. That's how people get caught in into making irrational decisions because they're following the herd. When it comes to behavioral finance or finances in general, you need to have blinders on, be secluded in a mental ward box, strapped in, and only thinking about yourself. Because when you try to keep up with the Joneses is when you end up not even having the money to even start keeping up with the Joneses. Everyone's situation in finance is different. If Warren Buffett did it, doesn't mean that you can just straight up just follow what he did because you don't know the ins and outputs of what made him successful yes. in that circumstances surrounding his success. Yeah. Yes. Everything has context. Then when you hear something about anchoring, anchoring is, is that stubborn old uncle over there that won't change his views. 
even though there's millions of data and examples out there that show that he's wrong. A lot of people anchor on to, oh, well, you know, my cousin, Sarah removed, you know, he, he made money and I thought that he went to business school and he said this and it worked out. So I'm going to follow that. That leads into herd mentality and anchoring because you're using someone else's thought process to benefit your own or hopefully benefit your own circumstance. And that never works. Anchoring never works. And when something is presented to you and it laughs in the face of what you think you're doing right and you keep doing that, that's anchoring. And that's how a lot of people lose a lot of money in, in finance is saying, well, no, 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 no. I, I don't care about this new information that proves me wrong. I don't care about that new information that proves me wrong. That also has a, 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 a cousin or even a big sister named confirmation bias. That's when, oh, oh you agree with me? So I'm just going to keep going because you agree with me. Even though I'm wrong, you agreed with me, so I'm just going to keep going on with it. And then the last one is overconfidence. Overconfidence is when you've made so much money in the world that no one can tell you anything because you are just so confident that you have a, a handle on everything financially and I don't need to worry about anything new coming up in the world. I don't need to know about anything in the past. I know because I'm confident and that's just how it's going to be. We all know people who like that. And we all seen the outcome of those people who don't remove those blinders of confidence and say, oh, I need to still learn. You know, I've been in this financial realm for almost 10 years now, and I'm still learning stuff today because everything is changing. Everything is fluid. And the moment you start to just close yourself off and not want to learn more about finance, is that when you start making silly mistakes. And that's, that's interesting because as athletic trainers, like we talk about that all the time, like always having more than one tool in your toolbox. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and when, and when you learn something, um, that's, that's not going to become the end all be all. And, um, a lot of, um, focus and a lot of talk is around emotional intelligence and, um, you know, things like that. It sounds like, um, with behavior finance, you need to have a certain amount of, um, financial emotional intelligence as well yeah yeah and you know a lot of people ask me the same question they'll they'll say wait a minute you're at pmc wealth management a lot of people understand what that means and then a lot of people come over and go wait a minute but then you move to wilshire associates why why did you move from this to that and a lot of it is because of behavioral finance a lot of times the clients i was working with They'll believe their cousin Bobby, who, you know, if you know, have uh, on his way to getting three different financial certificates, they, they're just like, nope, 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 I'm gonna believe him. And a lot of what I saw in the personal realm was more psychology than it is investment or finance because you're trying to break down barriers of people who have either had trauma in the past around money or came into a lot of money and had issues 
or, you know, their cousin Bobby told them to do X with their money or, you know, Billy over there told him to do this with his money. You come up into so many roadblocks. So the reason I switched from, you know, this will kind of help you with my background is because I needed to have that more dialogue conversation with someone that understood the behavioral or even the psychology behind finance and was able to understand the language and the lingo that I was talking. So, Sounds like you had some anxiety that gave you some anxiety. <laughs> yes, it was, it was a lot of days. It was a lot of anxiety on the personal side because, you know, you would tell somebody, hey, you know, your investment policy statement, your, and, uh, IPS, we'll talk about this in the investment uh, uh, portion of the topic, uh, but your IPS is um, basically your contract and your roadmap of what you're going to do in the, in the investment realm. And I would tell people, hey, you're bumping up against some of the limits that you set for yourself on an IPS. And they'll be like, so? And then I'm like, wait a minute, hold up. I, now I got to go to compliance and tell them that I'm about to break a code that's in your IPS because you don't want to listen to me because you feel that Bobby over here that went to school for poetry knows more than me. <laughs> At that point, I had to break <laughs> because I was like, I can't keep going to compliance, helping, you know, uh, uh, seeing that you're running yourself into basically a brick wall that's going to end terribly. I see the car crash about to happen. I'm pressing on the brakes, but meanwhile, you're over there unscrewing the brake pedal and putting in a gas pedal. You know, it's just like, whoa, 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 what? Okay. So when you're talking about finance, you actually have to know yourself first. Then understand the behavioral finance options behind it so that you don't become the same mistake that has been happening over and over and over and over and over and over again in this world. 90% of the people that fail in finance is because they didn't understand themselves and they didn't understand the behavioral finance portion behind finance. There's always something behind working that you don't see and that is behavioral finance. That's awesome. All right. So I, I got a that's, question. That's very heavy. Can I can I can I yeah, ask yeah, a question yeah. is maybe just a little bit, but um I I would like to know how to like how do I how do I create a budget? Like what's the how do you yeah. where do you where do you start even? Sure. Yeah. Um, this is something that is, it's a quick answer. And then you might be like, wait a minute, hold on. Why? Why? Um, if you're listening to this podcast, the main thing you need to have is Microsoft Excel. People think that it's like a million dollar, you know, um, scheme out there on how to create a budget. No, you just need to have Microsoft Excel. And you need to know the difference between non-discretionary and discretionary expenses. Okay. Think of what those two words mean. Non-discretionary, you have no control over it. It just happens. Discretionary, oh, you have the choice. And when you're able to use, the reason why I said Microsoft Excel is because you can set up an Excel chart in Microsoft Excel that shows you a breakdown of what are my fixed or 
non-discretionary expenses versus my variable or discretionary expenses. And really that's really understanding who you are and where your money is being allocated towards. When we're talking about discretionary expense and non-discretionary expense, what I do, and I can even send a blank template of how to set up a budget. That's something I can easily do. And I have it right now. I look at it every time I get paid. Okay, if I get $1,000 every paycheck, what do I have discretionary? What do I have non-discretionary? And let's make sure that my discretionary expenses don't exceed my non-discretionary expenses. Meaning, discretionary expenses, everyone is, oh, I need to go to Starbucks, get that eight coffees a day. Oh, I need to eat out every day. Oh, I just went to the, I just went to the grocery store, spent $200, but yet I need to go to, uh, uh, you know, the cheesecake factory on the same day that I just spent $200 at the grocery store. Oh, you know, um, I have a, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm going to, I'm not perfect. I love shoes. I have a shoe problem. I love to spend money on shoes. So there's a lot of people in this world, shoes, clothes, you know, electronics, uh, TV, all of that discretionary stuff. If you're able to put a lid on it and only have maybe one or two vices that you, you allow yourself to have and t- turn them into what's called a habit, that's okay. But the moment that you have discretionary expenses outweigh your non-discretionary expenses, you're in some trouble because what that is telling you is that you don't have enough discipline to make sure that your non-discretionary expenses are being paid for before your discretionary expenses. And that's when you see the person who has a Lexus outside, but living at home with their mom. But I, I'm talking about the guy that, you know, comes in with the Jordans, with the, with the, with the Gucci, with the handbags, you know, with the Joe Malone scent, but yeah, he riding on the bus. Who's Joe Malone? I'm, I don't Joe, uh, Joe Malone's is a fancy uh, cologne maker. I say I'm not hip either. They, they sell them out at, yeah. Yeah, they sell them at Norton and all that. Uh, that's, that's my, that's one of my discretionary. <laughs> one of my discretionary expenses. And they don't sell at Target, so I don't know. But, <laughs> yeah, but see, that's, that's the thing. That's the thing. You know, everyone has to play in the ballpark that their monetary uh, limits allow them to play in. Me, I'm allowed to go out and get a little fancy. I'm not out there trying to buy a Bugatti, you know what I mean? But and, and that's when the budget management comes into effect. You have to know yourself before you can start creating boundaries and constraints and making sure that your money is going to benefit you in the long run and that your expenses are being paid. So your non-discretionary expenses are going to be your car payment, your mortgage, your insurance, um, you know, your, your, your cell phone bill, things that are recurring always. You know the amount. You know when they're going to come out. Excuse me, every month. You know when they're not going to come out. You have those fixed expenses. Keep those under wraps. And I'll send... Nita, I'll send you a blank budget that you can share with your listeners and they can kind of fill in where your discretionary and non-discretionary are and it'll 
show you like a roadmap of what, what you have to do. And really, I'll put it in there to where all the formulas work out for themselves. All you have to do is put it in the, the dollar amount and let this and see where your shortfalls are. That and that's awesome. what I do. Awesome. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's awesome. And, and, and I'll put that in the link tree. Yeah, and I have it up right now. I was looking at it today, you know, um, thinking about, you know, car, you know, getting a new car because my lease is up and things of that nature. And I said, okay, well, let me create a budget for myself. What is my income? What do I have coming in versus what do I have coming out? So a lot of people, when they're thinking about creating a budget, they're like, oh, where do I start? Where do I start? Where do I start? Really, you just have to take a snapshot of your bank statement for, I'd say, three months. Just, just do three months because some of the stuff that you're that are in there as far as your discretionary expenses might differ. You know, you might not go to Starbucks every week in March, but you might do it every week in April. So you, what you want to do is start looking at a snapshot of about three month time frame and putting X near your non-discretionary, which is your fixed income or your fixed expenses and start putting these next to everything that's coming out, which is your variable or discretionary expense, and add them up. If your discretionary is more than your non-discretionary, you need to cut some stuff out. Because in the long run, that's when you get to, oh man, I can't even pay my mortgage today. Why? Oh, well, because you went to McDonald's 20 times in a year, you know, 20 times in a month. You know, you went and bought those Gucci shoes when you didn't need them, or you went out there and went to Starbucks and, and, and you know, spent $100 in a month. Always know your economic boundaries and your limitations. Meaning if you make a grand total of $30,000 a year, don't think you're trying out there to live on someone that's making forty dollars or $50,000 a year. Know yourself. Always know yourself. And one thing that I'm going to say about creating a budget is there are three life cycles out there. And when I mean like life cycles, there's, there's one called an asset accumulation stage. That is from your time, let's say everyone starts working at the age of 18. You have until age 18 all the way up until age 45. That's when you need to make as much money as you can. Because as as your prime age or your prime uh, 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 timeline from 18 to 45, where you need to make as much money as you can. Then there's the conservation or protection stage. That's where you're age 45 or 60, where you're saying, okay, I've had a long career. I'm starting to think about now tailoring back and retiring. Then you have your distribution or gifting phase, which is a 60 all the way to death. That's when you're saying, okay, I'm taking out my traditional RA, RMDs. I'm, uh, you know, uh, taking out my, some stuff from my Roth IRA or, you know, hey, I have a little more extra money coming from my Social Security. I want to, you know, gift uh, $1,000 to breast cancer awareness or anything of that nature. Know what stage you're in when you're creating a budget and play always within your life cycle phase and your economic boundaries. If you do those two, your budget, you will start seeing that you're able to start saving more than you were in the past. 
Because a lot of people, what they do is they'll get a check and they'll say, oh, I have $1,000. Okay. All right. Shoot, shoot. I need that. I need a car. Okay. Boom. I'm going to put that down. Okay. I need to put, I need to have something over my head. Boom. I'm going to put that down. Then they have all this extra money out there and they just say, oh, well, there goes my discretionary expenses. Let me just, where's all the rest of my money on those things? No, what you need to do is start being disciplined in your money and saying, I know tomorrow's going to come around. So do I have enough money to last me until tomorrow or until that next paycheck? Also, another thing you can do to kind of challenge yourself on from a financial budgeting um, uh, uh, aspect in life is go out there on Google or Bing and type in a 52-week budget challenge. There are so many that you can, you know, put a dollar amount to. There's even ones that say, okay, what do you want to have at the end of the year? You type in $600, they'll tell you how much you need to put away every day. I did that just to see if I was even disciplined enough to even follow or even show myself, hey, you can actually save if you want to do this. And that's why a lot of people get caught up in the, that's why a lot of people get caught up in the, uh, oh, okay, you know what? I don't know how to save. I don't know how to budget. I don't know where money's coming out or when money's coming in. It's because all they look at is, okay, I survived this paycheck. Now what? So when it comes to creating the budget, use a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. That's the easiest way to kind of track what you're doing as far as monetary goes and then rank or even file your expenses. If you're able to do those two things and along with the template I'm going to give Bonita, you can easily start seeing, okay, this is where my money's going. Oh, okay. I don't need to have my eight Starbucks over here every month because it's costing me a hundred dollars a month. What if I get it on a double star day? Well, well double star day. I mean, Hey, you're taking advantage. I, I Hey, Hey, I, I, I'm the same person that says, you know what? Them, them stars are worth a lot. So I do that, you know, and, and with, you know, my health, I, I'm not allowed to have coffee anymore. So I'm, you know, diving into the tea realm now, but, even on a double star day, I, I'll look at it and be like, yeah, I can do that. I can do yeah, that. Okay. I can do that one day. Yeah. Just checking. Yeah. But, <laughs> but then again, you know, that's, but then again, that's a prime example of Donita's discretionary expense, but she has a constraint around it. She doesn't just go to Starbucks every day. She'll say, all right, I'm going to go on the double star day because I have a risk or reward benefit coming off of me going to that double star day. And her reward is more chances of getting free stuff or free drinks and things from Starbucks. Exactly. And that's, that's something that, you know, and also uh, when you're starting to create a budget, there's a test out there. And I had all of my clients at PNC do. It's called a Myers-Briggs test. Myers-Briggs test is basically, it tells you whether or not you're introvert, extrovert, how you like to learn, how you perceive um, risk, loss, um, how do you look at the world from a holistic view? And what I was able to do is take those Myers-Briggs assessments and say, okay, Mr. Smith, I know that you learn best if I show you pictures to explain what I'm trying to tell you. Also, I know you're an extrovert, 
and that you like to be, uh, you know, the, 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 the center of attention. So it allows you to know yourself and then you can use all the inputs or the exputs or the ex or the outputs that that Myers-Briggs test shows you and put it towards your financial decisions also because now you know what drives you internally. So if you are a cautious person, you know you're probably going to save a lot more. Or if you know you're more of a risk taker, you know you're not going to save a lot more. And it helps you understand yourself and then it also plays into that behavioral finance because now you know you and you know how you feel about money or about life or about certain situations that might come up. It gives you a it gives you a roadmap, I would say, of how to perceive yourself in this world. So if and they're all online, there some of them are free, some of them you might have to pay a little subscription to, but if, if you're starting to go down that budget and trying to create a budget, know yourself first. That could be achieved by Myers-Briggs. Go do the template that I'm going to give to my sister. Put yourself into that. Put your financial goals and obstacles into that. And then also challenge yourself on the back end to possibly meet a 52-week uh, financial challenge. See if you can even do it. And that will kind of tell you how you should react around financial decisions. Because either you're disciplined or you're not. Either you're going to take the advice and say, oh, hey, there's a free template out there that I can just do, put myself in and it can help me with my budgeting. Or you're not going to know yourself and you're going to keep making the same mistakes because while you're thinking that you're an extrovert, you're actually an introvert and you should be saving more. So that's kind of like a way you can kind of go around with creating a budget. And if you have goals that you want to achieve, put that goal out there on your spreadsheet and say, how can I get to this goal? Give yourself a timeline, you know, even open up a different account if you can at a bank and say, hey, this is my, I want to go to Paris, you know, in the year 2024. Put that out there. Make a savings account. Make an account at the bank that allows you to deposit money towards that goal. Do the 52-week challenge to see if it can actually help you get to that goal. And now you're starting to see that everything comes full circle if you're able to know yourself, be disciplined, and then execute. That's how you create a budget. That's awesome. I'm over here taking a lot of notes. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, um, but, you know, I, I'm going to speak more towards the uh, more financial savvy uh, audience of your podcast." Let's just say, assets and liabilities, net worth, net worth equals assets minus liabilities. Assets is your paycheck. Your liabilities are all those discretionary and, and, and non-discretionary income. They'll spit out how much you're actually worth or how much actually you can actually then go off and do other things with. Do that on a monthly basis. See if it increases or decreases. Challenge yourself. Have fun with finance. Don't just say, oh, man, this is so crazy. I can't get my head around it. Challenge yourself. 
do things that you think you can't do as far as budgeting and, and investing or retirement. Challenge yourself. You'll see that at the end of the day, you're like, man, that wasn't that hard. And you might end up building a habit. Yeah, and that's what I do every. I do it every 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 month. I get a paycheck every, you know, and then they're like, "Hey, this is what you made." Okay, boom. Let me go ahead and put this into my Excel spreadsheet. Let me see what you know my wife brings in. Let's make sure all of our non-discretionary stuff is paid for. Boom. Okay, let's see if there's any discretionary funds out there. Oh, there is. Okay, let's set a limit. Let's challenge ourselves. Have fun with it. Don't always think of it as a daunting task. Think of it as, oh, you know what? I'm going to challenge my wife to not go and 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 spend five hundred dollars a month. Let's just see what happens. Just just see what happens. And you'll see in the end of the day, man, I actually have a lot more money. And you can actually enjoy finance and not be so uh, intimidated by it. Yeah, I think. That intimidation uh, turns a lot of people off. That's that's the number one reason why a lot of people fail in finance is because they see a task, they don't know themselves, and instead of looking out and saying, "Oh, I can defeat it," they just curl up and say, "Nope, nope, no, 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 I don't want to try it. Don't want to try it. Don't want to try it." And that's where that Myers Briggs test comes into play because it actually. The moment I took it, I learned so much about myself. I thought I knew myself. I'm like, uh, I'm confident. As you know, hey, uh, I'm going to go out there and do what I want to do. I'm an extrovert. You know, I can talk to people. I love people. I love to be the center of attention, this, that, and the third. Actually, come to find out I'm more of an introvert. You know what I mean? It was, it was so mind-blowing because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm this outgoing person. And, you know, I'm the center of attention. And come to find out, no, I'd rather just stay at home. <laughs> Never knew that about myself. But then it helped me because I knew that I was an introvert and that I'm not going to be out there running the streets or being in the club every day. So I'm going to start saving because that is my actual, that's my actual true self. So once you actually learn about yourself and know yourself, then you can start making sound financial decisions. And there's so many things out there, and I can say, I'll give you the, the template and whoever listen to on the podcast, do it. See what you can do. And all you have to do is put in numbers. If you can't do that, then there's more more things that you have uh, problems to, to, to correct. Okay. So why don't we uh switch gears a little bit? Um so if I were if I were thinking about starting an LLC or maybe I have an LLC, um, what are the best accounting practices for my business? Sure, yeah. Um, so when you're setting up any type of business structure, you need to know what structure you want to have. And when I say that is because certain people run into, oh, you know, I want to be a sole prop, I want to be a C-corp, I want to be an S-corp, I want to be an LLC, I want to be an entrepreneur, and then you're like, wait a minute, hold up, entrepreneur is just a, that's not a business structure, right. <laughs> you know, you know, let's talk about the true business structures, and then the reason why I say you need, you need to know um, the business structure is because when it comes to taxes and how you account for those taxes in your business structure is where you can start seeing people. Uh, if you ever heard the word cooking the books, 
or or changing the way they account for things in accounting. And that's one of the things I learned when I was in school is that, you know, many people go into business not knowing how the accounting part of their business plays such a huge role. And you can get into a lot of trouble if you're not structured the right way, but yet you're doing an accounting practice that is for a different business structure. So I'll, I'll make it really simple. There are three tax or even accounting rules that every business should know. You're going to have your cash accounting rule, which is where you report your income as soon as you get it. And you report your expenses when you actually take money out of your business account and pay for that expense. That's called a cash accounting. Then you have one that, and the cash accounting is more so for these type of businesses. It'll be your LLC, it'll be your C-Corp, and it'll be your individual or your sole prop. Uh, type of business structure. The sole profit, sole proprietorship. Right, right. right. Okay. That'll be your sole proprietorship. So that's more of like your, you know, hey, I want to just, you know, uh, resell sneakers, but I want to make sure that my business is up and running. Okay, you might do a sole profit, you know. Um, and then the second one is your accrual accounting. Your accrual accounting is when you're matching your income with your expenses. And it's more so balanced on, it's more so for people who have an inventory. So, you know, your easiest way to put this is a grocery store. They have thousands of inventory on there. They're not going to report on a cash basis because they don't have expenses out there. They don't, they're not sending a bill to someone. They're actually saying, okay, what's actually happening is someone comes in. They're taking an item off my shelf. They're paying for it. So I need to then go for and then make sure that I account for that item being off my shelf. So either I need to replace it or let people keep coming and taking more and more items off the shelf until I'm out. So that is your cool accounting for people who have an inventory. And then you have what's called a hybrid accounting. Your hybrid accounting is a mix between cash and hybrid. And the easiest example for that is a car dealership. Your car dealership, they're going to have people coming in paying bills. That's that's your car payment. That will fall under more of like your cash accounting. Then you'll have the actual selling of the car. They might have 50 you know, Chevy Traverses out there on the lot, but they're not going to say, oh, I sold one, now I got to make sure I pay the bill and do that and do this. No, they'll just let all of their inventory go down and then report it as one big lump sum. So that's a mix. The hybrid is mixed. So that's when you're saying, okay, I have inventory, but also I have expenses as in car payments. But then I also have an inventory, which is my car. So whenever you're trying to set up a business, make sure you know what you're trying to sell. And that will help you decide what accounting practice you need to fall under so then the IRS doesn't come knocking at your door. 
the last thing I would say about business structure is think about liability on a grand scheme, on a grand scale. Think about if, if something went wrong and I got sued, who's paying that 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 bill of being sued? A lot of people get into businesses just saying, "I'm just going to make as much money as I can, make as much money as I can," and, and they sell something. It harms somebody. That person comes out, tells, sues them, and then they're like, oh, I didn't do my business structure right. So now I'm getting personally sued instead of my business being sued. Okay, yeah. And there is um, an easy, and you might have heard it on the internet, um, you can actually go to... And you can Google this. I believe they are called. Oh, I'll I'll send you the I'll send I can't think of it off the top of my head, but there's an organization where you can actually go and ask lawyers how to set up your business, and they just you know it's a free it's almost like a free uh, think tank, and they'll tell you okay, they'll ask certain questions like all right, what are you trying to sell? What do you want to do? Um, do you have enough capital to do it? You know, and they'll help you structure your business the right way. So therefore, if liability is down. Um, your, your your chances of being sued is lower. Your accounting is correct. So therefore, you're running a good business, and you're not you don't fall under the category of cooking books or anything of that nature. And most most state most state governments have like. A website, so like um, the state of Maryland is um, businessexpress.maryland.gov. And you can okay. go there and find everything to plan, you know, to create a business plan, to start your business. It takes you step by step yeah. through planning, starting, and management and growing your business. Yeah, yeah. Do that first. Whenever you're starting to think about going into business, there's so many free stuff out there. If you just take the time to look it up, that will tell you the ins and outs. But for this podcast, I just wanted to say business structure is important. Know your business structure. Know what accounting you need to have for said business structure. And then just go out there, you know, and do what you do. So, um, so you, you told us about like the best accounting practices and um, the, the different business structures. So what are the major financial statements that I should familiarize myself um, yeah. with while being a, a business owner? Yeah, so there's so many different types of uh, financial statements out there. Um, some of the key ones that I will talk about today is just um, – a balance sheet and an income statement. And then the last one is a business statement of cash flow. And I'll briefly speak about three of them. And they can get kind of, you know, a lot of people get confused on which one is which. And hopefully this next uh, portion will clarify some of that up for you. So what did you say? I'm sorry. What did you say number two was? You said it was a balance sheet. An income statement. Income statement. Yeah, and then the last one is a business statement of cash flows. Okay. So your balance sheet is nothing but a snapshot in time of your finances 
at that point in time. A lot of people do this as far as a, uh, they'll look into it and say, okay, for my business, where am I right now? As far as uh, revenue versus expenses go, I just need to know back of the envelope, what, what am I doing? Where am I at? Am I above water or below water? That's where your business and your, your balance sheet will tell you exactly right then and there, a quick snapshot of where you are. A balance sheet, there are so many examples of balance sheets out there. You just have to make sure that the balance sheet that you're looking at pertains to the business structure and the business that you're running. Because there'll be a balance sheet out there for people who, um, you know, are car dealers. And then there'll be a balance sheet out there for people who are uh, grocery stores and a balance sheet out there for the person that is, you know, reselling sneakers. You know, it, there, make sure you look at the right balance sheet that goes with your business. And that's the same thing for all three of these. Make sure that the three that I'm talking about now, make sure you look for an example that pertains to your business structure. Because if you're using a balance sheet for, um, you know, someone who is just reselling sneakers versus someone who is doing grocery or auto sales, your balance sheet will never come out right. And the key term to a balance sheet is your assets and liabilities must match. Whatever you're putting in, it's all equal. So if you're looking at a T, if you're looking at the, if you're looking at it, the actual letter T, whatever's on the left side of that uh, vertical line, and what's on the right side of that vertical line, you need to map, map. That's what balance in the word balance sheet means. The second one is more of an income statement. That is what a lot of people look at their number one financial statement they need to know. Because that is a profit and loss statement, a lot of people call it a P&L statement. In my job, what we would look at is the P&L between investment strategies. Like, okay, did we, in this investment strategy, make more or less than this other investment strategy that we were thinking about? Uh, income statement will show you your income and expenses over a period of time. A lot of people ask me, oh, well, what's a good period of time? Well, there is no right or wrong answer for this, but it should, I always say, it should be between one and three years. Reason being is because most businesses fail within you know, maybe the first two or three years of operation. If you're outside of that third year, you might have something that can, you know, keep going on and on and on. So whenever you are looking at a profit and loss, clearly your profit should be higher than your losses. But what that also shows you is where you are losing money in your business. And there are examples for different types of business structures on an income statement. And all you need to do is use your handy-dandy Microsoft Excel and literally just type out the same business, the same business structure income statement that pertains to your business. And you can then start to see, okay, well, I'm spending too much in overhead. I have, I have a light bill that, that is 
you know, gone out of the blown out of the bucket. So it will tell you where your money is going in and where it's coming out and how you're profiting and how you're losing money. And it really gives you a snapshot over a time frame. So then you can kind of say, all right, maybe I need to go with a different and you know service provider for my internet because over through you know over a three years average i'm spending x where i could have been spending y if i'm with this other company so it shows you kind of like in down to the nuts and bolts of your business where you're bringing money in and where you're losing money so that is if i had the three to pick from i'd say use an income statement Okay. The last one is a business statement of cash flows. And this is more so for, you know, this is going to be for high level businesses. I'm talking about 2,000, 3,000 employees. You know, you got IRAs out there, 401ks, you got everything. You know, you're a real big time business. And the reason why I say that is because what a business statement of cash flows will show you is where your cash is flowing, where it's going, where it's um, either limiting risk or having more risk or if your liabilities are being paid or if your assets are growing or if your depreciation is getting too high. And what it does is there's three different levels of your business statement of cash flows. You have a business statement of cash flows for activities, that is your earnings. That is how much you're bringing in. Then you have one called a cash statement for business investment. That's when you're actually buying things to help run your business. Um, I, I, I put this example as in your newspaper company, you purchase a printing press that falls underneath your equipment to be able to run said business. So that will show you where your investments are in your business that allows you to either have a positive or negative profit and loss statement. Then you have your cash from finance activities. That is all your notes payable. That is all the people who owe you money or even people that you owe money to. And obviously you want to have that balance be where your notes payable or anything that people are trying to give money to you, either in a deferred or real-time payable, is more than what you owe somebody else. So those three kind of encompass the whole business landscape. And if I, like I said, you don't have to be a savant in all three. I would just go with a profit and loss statement, know that one, and then start whittling away between whether or not I need to have a balance sheet or versus a statement of cash flows. Because what you're trying to set up for yourself is, should I stay in business? That's what your profit, that's what your P&L or your income statement will tell you. And then your balance sheet tells you, okay, right now today, where do I stand? And then your business statement of cash flows is basically your roadmap. That's your that's your tree diagram. That is okay. Out of my thousand dollars, what? How? Out of my thousand dollars, where did that thousand dollars go? Did it go to earnings? Did it come from earnings, or did I 
purchase something as far as equipment or am I paying people too much or are people paying me enough in a reasonable amount of time? So it kind of helps encompass all of what you're doing on your business. That's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's very helpful information. It's a, it's a lot. And, and, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of... Um, it, it could seem like you're trying to almost now, you know, drink water through a hose, like a fire hose, but there are so many options and helps and, you know, ways to make it tolerable if you just know what you're looking for. And that's what I really wanted to let people know is that, hey, there are certain things that if you start here, it'll make it a less daunting task because now you have a beginning point. A lot of people go into anything financial without a beginning point. They just know what their ending point wants to be. True. That's very true. <laughs> like, how do you get from point A to point B? Yeah. Yeah. And you see the point B out there and you're like, man, I, can't, I, I have an idea of how to get there, but how do I start? How do I get out of the block? And all of the information I'm giving you today kind of gives you that starting block tools and all you need to do is make sure you pick the right one for whatever situation you're in or for whatever race you're trying to run, really. So you really seem like you could just talk about this for absolutely everything. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, So let's uh, switch it up a little bit again. Um, so we're going to um, really quickly kind of um, go over an actually very broad topic. Um, sure, yeah. So um, if I'm thinking about investing okay. um, on various levels, um, yeah. like what is it and why should I start today? Sure. Why, so, why should I invest? So investment is basically... Um, I always, always put it to deferred compensation. You're deferring, you're putting away money so that you can then benefit later on in life. Investing has so many rules, regulations, red tape, all that stuff around it. But you can do it. I'm a prime example of why investing is something that everyone can do. If you just do it. Reason being is, I don't know if you know, but um, neither the first time I ever, 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 ever invested in anything was when I was 14. Dad doesn't know this. Mom doesn't know this. I probably haven't never told anybody about this. Yeah, definitely. This is news to me. <laughs> I saved, I saved uh, all my lunch money that dad would give me, which was $5 a day. I got five dollars a day because you know at, at the master those, those lunches weren't cheap, you know. <laughs> you know, so so um you know I got five dollars a day and I did this basically challenge to myself where I would try to live for for a day off of 
twos and three dollars. So anything that I had left over, I would just save, 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 save. So eventually I had enough money to buy my first stock. And back then at that time, all you needed was just uh, you know, some type of ID and a bank account. Beg, plead, mom. I remember I remember that process. Yeah, I, uh, I, I had to take Martel to the bank because he wants yeah. a bank account so bad. Yeah, <laughs> I never told anybody why I wanted it, but I knew I needed it. And eventually, Mod told me, "Yes, I'll take you up to the credit." Perfect. That's what I need. Dang, got it. Bought my first stock. My first stock was Coca Cola. At the age of fourteen, I think it was around maybe forty bucks a share. When I, when I tell y'all this man was so excited to get this bank account, I can't even. It, 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 was, it was better. It was better than Christmas morning getting every toy you could ever make. And it was because I wanted to do that. And another reason why I got into investing was because going to school, I was able to, you know, be introduced to so much stuff, you know, going to a private school, went to the math, you know, everyone knows about what that entails. I was, my eyes were open during business, in business class. And I heard about this guy, Warren Buffett. And I'm like, who is this? Then I read a little bit, read about who he was, read about the circles he was in. And I was like, yep, that's what I need to do. So every day before I went to school, I asked dad, for five dollars and twenty-five cents. One day he finally asked me, "What do I do with the twenty-five cents?" I said, "Dad, I, when you drop me off at school or at the bus stop, I walk down to the next bus stop or to the next available available place to where I can buy a newspaper." And I bought the Wall Street Journal every day since the age of fourteen. Wow. That I right remember there, that. <laughs> that right there. And I, I mean, it was all over my, I had all three journals under my bed. I had financial journals underneath my bed, financial journals in my locker, all this stuff. But that right there was the reason I started to think about investing was because I saw someone that kind of broke investments down into a language that I could understand. And once I understood that it was nothing but a science behind it and that there was numbers and, you know, everything was interconnected, that's what got me to investment. You don't need to have that same passion that I did to invest. When you want to invest, what you're really trying to do is set up basically an allocation. When I say an allocation, that means a playbook of what you want to invest and how all those pieces in that playbook interact to each other and actually come out to produce a profit. There are so many ways to invest. And the first way to start is by opening it up an account an investment account with one of the brokerage firms. So that was Merrill Lynch, uh, Charles Schwab, Trade, E-Trade, the list goes on and on. You can, you can literally look up millions of brokerage firms. And really investing 
is more about understanding what you own and how what you own can profit and benefit you. Whenever you're investing, you're going to have so many vernaculars, lingos, all that out there. But really, it only comes down to two things. Stock, bonds. Yeah, there are other, you know, tools and things out there. But a stock is nothing but ownership in a company and a bond. Think about a bond as an IOU to said company. I'm going to break it down as easy as I can because, like you said, investments is such a broad topic. Everybody in this world knows something about an industry or a sector that is directly affected or directly correlated to the stock market. Athletic trainers, what do you do 90% of your day? And I'm going to boil it down. I'm going to dumb down my vision of something to just put it into context. You prevent injury or try to help prevent injury so that that player can keep playing. So in that attempt to help someone always stay on the floor, always stay on the field, you're dealing with tape, ice, gel, equipment, who owns all of those things? Let's see. Johnson and Johnson. You might have petroleum jelly. You might have an equipment. Gatorade. You might have Gatorade. <laughs> you might have different types of sneakers or socks. Insoles. Insoles. All that inventory, whenever you go back to your offices and you look around, all that inventory, that ain't nothing but stock. Hmm. Because someone or some company owns that, that, that inventory that you use. So if I'm an investment person and, I'm, and, I'm, and I want to invest and I'm an athletic trainer, I probably know a little bit about equipment, medical equipment, tape, things of that nature. And you can kind of then say, okay, I know that tape has so many avenues that it goes off into, right? I know what's coming around the corner around the evolution of tape or uh, the evolution of equipment. Those companies, you can invest right into it. So think of it this way. I walk into, you know, a school and I see all the tape out there. The, the, the player or the, 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 the individual moves it, throws it away, moves it, throws it away. You know what I would do? I would invest in that tape company and I and I invest in any type of waste management company because someone has to supply the tape and then someone has to dispose of the tape. That Never right thought there, of the disposal part. Never that thought. right there is waste management. I'm sorry, that was that was mind so blowing right for there, me. So right <laughs> there, 
<laughs> right there, you already have an insider trader's knowledge of inventory that is directly correlated to a company that you can then invest in. Once I broke that code and I knew, oh my God, back in 1994, 1993, when Coca-Cola came out and was like, oops, sorry, our bad, we were doing stuff with illegal drugs to get you hooked on our Coca-Cola. That was not in the 90s. Well, whenever it was. <laughs> <laughs> that's what, that's what, that's what, oh, Lord. That's what I knew, you know. I mean, in D.C., they might, you know, D.C., they rock a little different. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, that's what I understood. Oh, that's what that is. <laughs> you know, but that point, of, that point of example is there's always going to be a market for everything out there. There's a marketplace for water, for pencils, for shoes, for socks, everything. And you can invest directly in that market. Whenever you're looking to invest, I would say always start small and always start with an industry or a topic that you know of or invest in something that interests you or you have a passion. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry, family. I know it's just getting good. We're going to have to pause it right there and pick it up again next week. Once again, on behalf of Dr. Donita Valentine, this is Dr. Holland. I want to thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Instagram and Twitter at the underscore top underscore DAT again on LinkedIn at top dash DAT one. We are going to pick up next week and wrap up this installment with senior analyst Martel McDuffie. 